0: Hi I'm James and I'm Cairo and we're bringing you Who Cares Wins. This is the podcast all about caring for somebody you love. Sharing your stories about some of the amazing work that carers
1: do out there but also not shying away from some of the darker things and trying to do it with a bit of a smile
0: on our face because I think sometimes James we just have to laugh. And please do subscribe, click that little button And if you enjoy our conversations, please do rate them as well, because it really helps us to share some of these stories with people across the country who are often feeling extremely isolated.
1: James, we're here for another episode of Who Cares Wins? Yay! It is going very well. I said as we were walking in that we talk about having lots of laughter, but there hasn't been that much laughter so far, James. That's because you're not very funny. I mean, that is the case. Is the it's case. a burden for you,
0: right? <laughs> but no, it's
1: interesting. I, it's interesting when I, I think when I hear. Like there are there are definitely those moments in stories where it can, they can get quite. When you're in talking to people about their caring roles, and it gets quite full on, and mm. I know my natural reaction is just to laugh at stuff in probably inappropriate.
0: times. So I get that when I interview people because um, because we want this to be you know, light-hearted and fun. So I go into it with that mentality, and then somebody describes something awful that's happened, and then I laugh. And then, and then, and then I have to gauge on the person's face whether or not I'm going to have to retrospectively edit the laughter yeah, out. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, the amount of times I've gone, look, I'm only laughing because otherwise I'd be crying. And when you kind of, they're laughing and they're like, that's not funny, why are you laughing? I'm like, oh, please, because it's the only like defense mechanism I have to, to get
0: through it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and So I sat down with John and Emily uh, just the other day, uh, so you know John because he, uh, well it's complicated to explain how we know John. Um, we work in the same office, not that complicated James. <laughs> no, okay, uh, you've cut, <laughs> cut through the noise and you've got to the signal there, um, and, and his lovely wife Emily, uh, who I've met a couple of times now, um, and they, they now this, this will be a weird one to listen to because they both have I think quite dark senses of humour. Yeah. Well, I know John does, yeah. and so they they talk about it. All of these things in in a slightly surreal uh, way, but it, it's really interesting to listen to them. If um, you if you can put up with the quality of the recording, this was the first outing for my fancy new microphone, and uh, yeah, it feels a little bit like a trial period. Did you read the instructions, James? I did. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we were also joined by Bella, the delightful if flatulent dog. Okay, so here's John and Emily.
2: I'd say because I'm the one who's got a health condition, you are my carer. But actually, I feel we care equally for each other.
3: I would think you care more for me.
2: Yeah, but But there are moments where I need a lot of care. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, although I'm I'm not sure I would describe myself as an active carer because most of the intense times where I've been required, she's in a, a hospital... So, like the some of like the mundane stuff that you might associate with care in terms of feeding and looking after. I don't have to. Do, there's nur- there's nursing staff, so I am then a, a like sort of pastoral carer. I'm the person who gets sent out to get takeaways and oh, I need this shampoo, and to you know give her a hug when things are you know, having dark moments, and. And I suppose what's also different about our, our situation is in those extreme bits, it, it's quite life and death. It's not, a, it's not a mundane care situation that looks like it's going to go on forever. It's a, in most instances, something that it looks like it's going to be quite finite, unless you get a golden bullet, which we've had twice.
0: Uh, so, Emily, can you tell me a little bit about the condition and your, your journey? Because you've had it for a little while, have you?
2: Um, okay, so I've got cystic fibrosis. Um, I was diagnosed at a few months old because I had failure to thrive. I was very well until probably my 20s. I started out of the old hospital admission. Um, and then after John proposed about a week later, I got incredibly ill. Um, I was in hospitalised and didn't know I'd recovered. That's that had only happened to me once before, and it had taken me six months to get better after months in hospital i've been on oxygen i was on a wheelchair Gosh. Um, and that was when i was 21 but then i managed to get over that rebuild myself um, meet john so when it happened again i sort of was quite scared but i also knew i was i was still hopeful that it would i'd do it again and i did so after that uh, it was all fine. We lived in Abu Dhabi for several years, and then we came back. Then two thousand and ten, I got swine flu. Um, and then things weren't really the same after that. I got ill again in 2000, summer two thousand and eleven, and then I was in hospital until my transplant in September. No, when was uh, August two thousand and twelve? So over a year in hospital, but I did have a week out for Christmas and a week out around Easter.
3: A year in hospital. Yeah, one, one. We think we've had cumulatively in our sort of ten-year marriage about between two and a half and three years of hospital I time. Do,
2: I don't think it's that much.
3: Okay. Well, oh, certainly over, it's over two, two. It's over two years. There's
0: plenty. What you're saying is that there's a like there's a bit of it which is you know, periodically peaks in in kind of clinical activity. Yeah.
2: But then I recover, I get yeah. better. So after my first transplant, I sprung back to life um, and did really well for several years. Climbed a volcano, got a world record for climbing. And then um, they changed all my drugs at the hospital. And within six months, I was on the transplant list again. Right. Uh, so that was a very, very quick decline. And again, quite a crush when it was only three years, four, three, four years after my first one. So then I had another transplant, and again and this we just this slowly climb back. This is down. a lung transplant, right? Yeah, double lung transplant. Mm.
0: So, the, so the, that's not mucking around. That's that's a pretty no, big deal. No,
2: ha- I mean lung transplants have the lowest survival rates. I think our worldwide survival rates for lung transplant is five years.
3: Gosh, it's worth noting that although she wasn't in hospital as much for that transplant she was basically that's probably the most care from me required in the run up to that transplant because we rigged up the entire house with oxygen we were living i was working in london and africa it, the whole thing was a yeah logistical nightmare and that went on for quite a long time
2: yeah, yeah. And, to,
3: uh, and then and then the actual months. transplant itself as opposed to the first transplant which was uh, a out. sort of you've got to right. have this, otherwise you're dead. This one was a bit more. This, you're going to die, but got a bit more time. It was a bit. It felt a bit more elective.
2: So they have They have to do um, a second transplant earlier because it's so much more. It's a t- another toll on the body, and the chances of survival are probably a bit lower. Uh, not the actual operation, but the recovery. Um, so they try and do it when you're not so ill. The first one they can leave right till. You're very, very close to death. And the second one, um, I ended up in a coma. My heart did stop beating, so I suppose I died. But they restarted it. I had stroke, had blood clots, in my leg nearly lost my right leg. in My neck, my arm swelled, swelled up.
0: You, yeah, uh, you, you, you both just, just in terms of the body language, you, you both seem seem very relaxed about this. But it, it, that must be covering
3: up quite a, quite uh, a significant emotional i almost surgery.
2: everything you can go through in terms of surgery and... I'd just
3: yeah. like to take and a little bit of sparkles. a credit. You were asleep during all of that. I, I was, <laughs> living <laughs> it. I was living it. Yeah, that, yeah it was pretty I stressful. Don't I
2: don't know, I had a stroke.
3: Yeah. It's quite a funny mm-hmm. moment, um, after, um, I mean, she'd been out of it for a long time and it had been, I mean, there was, they couldn't get the bleeding inside her stops. She had seven surgeries in the first 48 hours. And her lungs just kept bleeding, they couldn't get the the old tissue from her first set of new lungs uh, out, and they were worried about infection, so she was basically open for two days um, and kept going in and out of surgery. That was pretty uh emotional when they did eventually kind of stem that they she then went through the normal period of like kind of bedding down and then they try and wake you up and they couldn't wake her up for about two weeks, which, again, was very kind of emotional uh, watching it. having We'd been on this kind of like four-week vigil uh, around the bed, and I was like, are you okay? Do you know who I am? And miraculously, she, she actually nodded at me, and then she pointed at me and went, you, by pointing at me, and then made the universally acknowledged sign for... A wanker. (laughs) (laughs) At which point I knew uh, she was (laughs) bad. Do you remember that?
2: Yeah. For me, I was like, of course I know who I shut up in my head. I mean, I couldn't say anything and I'd had horrific hallucinations and And I didn't know.
0: And you didn't know that you'd been asleep for four weeks?
2: No. So waking up is quite difficult because you are obsessed. I was obsessed with time for a while, like... You know, I, I remember seeing the clock at 4 o'clock and I, or 5 o'clock, and I didn't know if it was 5 a.m. or 5 p.m. The actual, you know, I was being fed through a nasal gastric tube. I didn't swallow. I didn't poo. Every bodily function was taken away from me. And so I had no concept of time. My mouth got very dry. I had to be sponged regularly. I had to be moved in the bed for bed sores and to be washed and cleaned. I just couldn't believe that I'd missed a month. I kept thinking it was about May and it was actually the end of June, beginning of July.
0: John, during that time, did, did you
3: sit by the bed every day? Did you just get on with work or what? Well, they, 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 deliberate, they, yeah, they deliberately limit your visiting hours because otherwise people feel guilt. <laughs> I'm sure it's a common thing amongst like carers that... You need to be there, but actually you don't do anyone any good sitting by a, someone in a coma. So they limit you to, I think it's four or five hours a day.
0: Your relationship with your in-laws must be quite a, a complex one because presumably that they were particularly protective of, of you, Emily, having known that you had a, a condition when, when you were growing up.
2: Yeah, I um, mean, to be honest, John is amazing and he cares for me a lot and he would be the person I go to but there is it's 50 50 or even slightly more my mother that cares for me you know she leaves me to myself but if I need her she will drop everything and just and actually they said at the hospital that my all my results I was a lot less stressed my blood pressure my heart rate everything improved when she was in the room I don't know how we'd have done it if
3: if she wasn't as good as at it as she is and if she wasn't she takes enjoyment uh, to a degree from being able to helpful. to do that but mm. you can't stop her from being helpful so thank god for but her but
2: she's been my carer since day I was born
3: so your mum
0: had a lot of this from her nursing background and then picked it up when you were born and 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 she And had I have a brother
2: with cystic fibrosis as well
0: okay Right, so so actually, she's a bit of an expert at this. Uh, But nevertheless, John, that must have been a huge amount to learn and to to figure out as you as you went along.
2: We, I remember very slowly introducing things to John and not trying to overload him with too much information in one go, because I always had a backup. I didn't need Mm -hmm. him, you know, if he was in Africa working or doing something, I had another carer, and I think that's really important for for the carer is to have. Someone else who can take it on?
3: Yeah. I'm I'm more helpful than proactive. (laughs) Yes, he he does what he's told rather than proactive. I wonder how important it
0: is for you to feel that you have control over how people are looking after you.
2: Yes, well I mean it's it's my condition and I want to be looked after how I want. I don't want I want help when I need it and when I don't want it. Probably still want help. <laughs> I don't want when I don't need it, I don't want it. And um, so it was. It was important not to overwhelm John, not just because I was trying to entice him, in, but to for him to take it on board. You know, otherwise he wasn't going to remember everything.
3: I still don't remember everything. I still need instruction. I can't do the drugs on my own. We like, uh, we haven't shown you her drug box, but like it takes us together twenty minutes to load up her drugs for the week on your own 30 minutes you know it's uh, that i don't know how all of that works but it's also worth saying that i think she's a pretty extraordinary case in this respect because there's no doubt in my mind if it wasn't for her she'd be she wouldn't have survived she wouldn't have probably got to transplant two maybe not even transplant one on the basis of being so obsessed with her own condition and so well educated about it I mean in another life she'd probably end up being a doctor or something like that which is a kind of family profession um, that she often knows more than her doctors do about her own condition so as a carer you've got no chance of being at a sort of level of parity with her in terms of expertise.
2: My mum has a chance because she's done it for longer (laughs) (laughs) but you don't. (laughs) Yeah. But you, well, I think it's important for the patient to remember that the carer is not a mind reader and that you do have to say what you want. Otherwise, how are they ever going to know? And to do things the way you would like them done because the most frustrating thing is you want your, your carers doing what you can't do. So you want them to, them to do it the way you would do it yourself and they'll do it their way. So it's, that can be difficult, you know, even if it's something like making the bed. I want him to make the bed the way I would make the bed, not, not the way just throwing the duvet over
0: Well, one of the things I have picked up from the, the conversations I've had with people is that engaging with medical professionals is one of the hardest. The, um, just listening to you guys talk to each other, it's very striking that in, in the same breath you're talking about life and death and really profound, big issues... And also, kind of squabbling about um, how to make a bed and some of the really kind of practical things. Yeah. D- does coping with that breadth of situation put a strain on your relationship, or do you feel like it deepens the relationship? Well, I mean, it's just quite
3: annoying sometimes. <laughs> well, that's not normal. <laughs> <in a> marriage, <laughs> isn't it? I, I, I think it's much. I think it's got, it, of course, it deepens the marriage. We've been in a short time through, you know, lots of stuff that hopefully no one else get, has to go through, um, and had lots of discussions that you wouldn't need to have in, in other relationships. relationships. Mm. Um, I've certainly, you know, my career has been completely affected by this, and embracing the positives of all of those impacts is is key to kind of getting through it. It would be very easy to get <coughs> miserable or be negative about the costs, I suppose, of, of going through this. But I think we both choose to look at the, the opportunities, of which there have been many. You know, we still are both aware that there's, you know, big challenges ahead of us, hopefully a long way down the line. But so, you know, it's all about uh, making the best best of it and really enjoying kind of, we don't say no to anything... It's, it's
2: strengthened our relationship. But I can, I can see how it could go the other way. So, you know, people... I've seen it go both ways.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: But but on the whole, most people who go through transplants or cyst fibrosis have really good partners because partners, you know, they're getting into a very difficult partnership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, they're aware of that. And that I think... It just makes relationships stronger generally from day one. But that's not everyone, but for the majority, definitely it's yeah. stronger. In,
3: so, in conclusion, she's very lucky to have me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I think we're very lucky because uh, Bella the dog has only farted once in the course of our conversation. It could have been a lot worse. I didn't pick up on that. Might have been um, well, thank you both very much. Thank you for sharing all of that and
3: for introducing me to Freddie. He's blind
2: and
1: uh, deaf oh, wow. so, We're his podcast, cares. Right. Yeah. so I mean I was I've listened to actually that three times now
0: wow because it is good
1: <laughs> yeah I just think it's incredible that like, I mean how much they've been through uh, together and still like knowing John I could like, listening I could imagine him smiling together and that kind of black humour that is mm. so dark and laughable because you kind of have to be because the situation was so like, so crazy. Like, three sets of lungs. Like, it is, it's unbelievable. You know, and, and she talks about having the stroke and the, the blood clots and I'm sure that was only, you know, half of what she actually went mm. through and to be able to still have a smile on your face or still manage to get through it in a, with such good humour is, is incredible. So
0: it's an interesting thing. Is, is it, is it because you've got things sorted and you're absolutely relaxed about stuff that means you can then laugh about it? Or is it that when you're nervous and facing kind of big emotional upheaval and you're talking about death and all of the things that John Lemley described, that actually the only way to be able to do that and keep yourself? rational about it is to be able to laugh about it
1: mm, I mean it's interesting I don't know how much black humour is culturally very British thing you know you oh, look at Blackadder um, we laugh about this kind of stuff largely because we don't really know how else to behave There's around sort
0: of it it's an emotionally re- repressed thing yeah <laughs> yeah
2: I mean, um, I'm not accusing John
0: and Emily of being emotionally repressed. There, that's, yeah. Luckily, they're that's friends. Unfair. Otherwise, that's, that's tough. <laughs> um, but uh, you, what, you, you've got your mate Gordon.
1: Yeah, so Gordon Southern, who's a comic, um, a stand-up, he recently did this amazing show talking about Alzheimer's and dementia um, in his family. And there are, yeah, there are moments where he's talking about really similarly, like really dark things, but it just does it with a kind of smile and, and it turns them into jokes. I know, you know, there's incredible moments where people have to see the humour in these moments because there's really only other... Otherwise, it's just darkness. And it is a coping strategy. I think on a, on a previous podcast, I think one of our guests, Allegra, talked about, you know, there is um, laughter groups and laughter workshops. Yeah, laughter therapy. Laughter That's therapy. The I, think that, I think it is that because you do have to laugh sometimes otherwise you'll, you'll cry. It's funny, I was talking to a couple of carers quite recently and one of... Well, this, this lady whose husband had dementia... And she was talking about how often her house feels like a prison and that she has to lock herself into a her little toilet yes. and turn the light off because it's the only place she felt safe. And that, you know, is incredibly dark and sad. But she was laughing how she had to buy a little nightlight so that she would have a light in the toilet that she could read to <laughs> while she was stuck in there. And we were laughing about the kind of craziness of this situation. And just be, just below the surface, there's this incredibly difficult, really sad, where somebody feels like they have to lock themselves in the into the bathroom because they had no other way to escape, and that's incredibly difficult. But the way she told the story with humour was was funny. And it,
0: you know, there's interesting actually something about laughter, as well as opposed to humour, is that laughter is a form of solidarity, right? Mm. laughter says I hear your story and I identify with it and I'm with you I mean I laugh at you and look quite (laughs) like my to be honest but no (laughs) I take it (laughs) a fundamentally cold hearted man one of the other things I find really interesting about John and Emily is the way they have totally and deliberately used everything that's been going on and approached it as a way to enhance their relationship Mm. and they've been really conscious about that
1: yeah and, and making it stronger I think when you go through some of that together, it really does thick and thin is is a is a kind of too smaller description. I think it can it can make people bond so much stronger. Like it it can also break people. It can break relationships. Sure. I think there's a lot of that happens. But you know the way they you using know, you're you kind of talking about it, the way they sat there, pretty relaxed and smiling at each other's company when they're discussing. Really horrible things, serious things,
0: and I suppose that, that that doesn't happen by accident, right? So they've they've both worked at that, and you've described before about how you've you've been really deliberate about how you build your relationship with your mum outside the caring role, mm. and that actually there are things that you can do to be conscious about it to give you a, a fair wind in that regard. Yeah,
1: and and exactly making time to be the husband or the wife in the relationship, and you know it was interesting at the beginning. Um, when you asked the question about, you know, what's the relationship in, in terms of being cared for and cared? And I thought it was interesting that, you know, John was like, look, I care for her in some respects. A lot of the time she cares cares for me at the same time. He is pretty dopey, so... Yeah, and I <laughs> yeah. How that works. He would struggle getting out <laughs> of a brown pecker bag. But yeah, so I think there was something important in recognising when you're being a carer and when you can be cared for, and I think that's part yeah. of the relationship. It makes it
0: mutual. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And there's a, And there is a a mutual need and a mutual want and another thing she mentioned was the when she doesn't need the care she strongly doesn't you know she doesn't yeah. want it she wants to be able to be the wife to to John and I think there's a really interesting balance there of being able to be both roles in a relationship but then I suppose the other side of that is that her condition the fact that she has these periods of being well Allows us to do that, you know. In in many,
0: but but that's one of the things I'm picking up that that in my head I've got caring as being a permanent thing, or or at least a long term thing. And actually, quite a few examples go in peaks and troughs. So especially those we spoke to Tina a couple of weeks ago, and her ex husband David had periodic Mm. uh, episodes where she became a carer, and and similarly, I suppose with Emily, there are. Times when she's been in hospital and it's all been very traumatic, are there are other times when uh, actually mm. it, it feels not too far from a, a, a regular life and I think mental health plays a big part in that, and the the periodic
1: ups and downs that mental health often you often see in mental health
0: I know that's very much
1: how my relationship with my, my mum is for for long periods of time. It's fine and there's nothing there, but then there's these kind of periods of of quiet darkness for her and uh, and requirements for care of me. And that and that makes it difficult in lots of ways because, you know, you look forward for the to the good times and those periods when you can be relaxed and you can enjoy each other's company, whatever that may look like. But you often know the next period of darkness is coming. And I know that's something my mum really struggles with. When you're having a really dark moment, the way she sees it is, well, what's the point of struggling to try to get kind of well again if I know and I get unwell again. It feels yeah, like a constant of, yeah. a constant battle, where I look at it in the on the positive side, and I go, well, you have to live for these t- moments when you're well, and then you fight through the, the times when you're bad. For her, you know, she often feels like it would be easier just to stay at the bottom, rather mm-hmm. than fighting your way up, if it's a constant battle. But that's exhausting, and I, I think
0: that's... Well, she was very explicit at one point there, where she said, in order to be cared for in the way that I want to be cared for, I need to be telling people what that is. And, and it's something I hadn't thought of before, which is that the, the person being cared for, obviously when they're able, uh, needs to be articulate and almost uh, working with the, the people around them who are caring for them to make sure that it's done in the way that they want. Otherwise, otherwise it's not going to be the way that they want and need it to be.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think it's interesting. I think having a voice and and being able to explain when you need help, when you don't need help from both people, both sides, whether you're the cared for or the loved one, is super important. I think one of the really the key things we're trying with mobilize is to allow people to give people a platform to help them find that balance between knowing when they can give support and when they can when they need the support. As I think too often what happens you it's out of balance and it reaches Reaches that crisis point, which is what we're trying to trying to avoid.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's very true. So, thank you very much to John and Emily, and to Bella, the flatulent dog. And it's been really helpful to to hear your story. That's the end of this little group of uh, episodes uh, at the moment, but we're going to have a few more in a couple of weeks. And if anyone out there
1: has would like to come and share their stories on the podcast, please get in touch. We'd yeah, love to. Great. We'd love to hear from you. I think it's, we all. I think we all agree. It's super important that it's amazing how. Stories can really help bond people and and break that sense of being alone and isolated. So, yeah, please please do come and, and share your stories. Smashing. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone.